This morning, church, I invite you to take your Bible, turn to the gospel according to Mark chapter 13. I'll be reading in your hearing verses 1 to 37. And once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 13, I'll begin reading at verse 1. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out, that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he, and he will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested or brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at that time. For it's not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter. Because those will be days of distress, unequal from the beginning, when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect if that were even possible. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. 
As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door, keep watch. Therefore, keep watch. Because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, whether when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. You may be seated. People are infatuated with conclusions. We want to know how things are going to end. Uh, Typically, the highest ranked television show is the season finale. Why? Because the audience wants to know how is everything going to end. A movie is typically regarded as a flop. If the conclusion fails to tie up the loose ends of the plot. In sports, nobody cares about the halftime score. It's the final score that determines the winner and the loser. In the Olympics, the gold medal is not given to the first runner who finishes on the first lap. It's given to the runner who finishes first on the last lap. We are infatuated with conclusions because we simply want to know how everything's going to end. It's this infatuation with conclusions that sparked a conversation between Jesus and his disciples in Mark chapter 13. In the previous chapter, Jesus had been a floating theological classroom going from one point of the temple to another point of the temple, entertaining questions, and it culminated with a life lesson as he sat across the space and watched how people gave money in the temple treasury. Jesus gave a lesson about living and giving for he is communicating to his disciples that how we give to God determines something significant about how we live before God. With that last teaching, the public ministry of Jesus came to a close. Jesus and the disciples exited the court of women. They went down the temple mount And in the course of leaving the temple complex, one anonymous disciple says to Jesus, Teacher, look at these massive stones. What a beautiful building. Certainly nobody can fault this disciple for being enamored with the beauty of the temple. Nothing wrong with seeing the beauty of a building. In fact, it was Josephus, that first century Jewish historian, that said the temple was a beautiful sight to behold. Especially at this time of year, Passover, everything's polished, everything is clean. It is Josephus who says 
that the temple was built on massive white stones. They were six feet wide, four feet tall, 12 feet long on these massive rectangular shaped white stones was built the house of God, the temple complex. Nothing wrong with the disciple marveling at the beauty of the building. In fact, if you and I could take a field trip today and if we could fly to Europe, more than one of us would marvel at the beauty of some of those cathedrals. If we were to walk up and down the hill country of the various cities uh, there in Europe, we would marvel at the architecture and more than a few of us would say, look how beautiful, look how majestic, look how magnificent those structures are. The shocking part of this conversation is not that the disciple is enamored with the beauty of the building. No, the shock is the response of Jesus. You expect Jesus to say, yeah, you're right, that is glorious. But he doesn't. He says, I'll tell you the truth. Not one of those stones will be left on another. All of them will be thrown down. What the disciples were thinking, none of them articulated. For they thought to themselves, how can this be? How can the temple be destroyed? That's the house of God. That's where God dwells. How can Jesus say that not one stone, these massive stones, will be left on another? As they left the temple complex, they went up the Mount of Olives. They sat down and looked at the temple itself And Mark tells us that it's Peter, James, John, and Andrew who privately go up to Jesus and say, Sir, can you please tell us when will this devastating event take place? What will be the sign where we can tell that this horrible event where not one stone will be left on another at the temple will be accomplished? What follows is the longest single teaching passage of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. It spans the entirety of the 13th chapter. It is a lesson that is framed around the idea of watch. It's a command that uh, begins the teaching and ends the teaching. It's the first word of Jesus. It's the last word of Jesus. Jesus says to his disciples, watch. At the very end, he says, I'll say to you what I say to everybody, watch. In fact, there are at least seven occasions in these 37 verses where Jesus tells his disciples to watch or to be on guard or to be alert. He uses two Greek words and they're used interchangeably, but you find at least one of them in verses 5 and 9, in verses 23 and 33 and 34 and 35 and 37. On at least seven occasions, Jesus tells his disciples, watch, be on guard, be alert, keep your eyes open, stay attentive. Those are all the nuances of the meanings of those two Greek words. This is a lesson about his disciples being alert, being watchful. In verse 5, he simply says, watch out that you are not deceived. There will be many who come and they will say, look, there he is. Look, there is the Christ. Don't be deceived. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't be deceived. 
Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes and other natural catastrophes. There'll be tsunamis. There'll be tornadoes. All these things are, it's just a a birth pains that the end will come. But regardless, you be watchful and watch out that you are not deceived. In verse nine is the next watch. Watch out that you're not intimidated. Because on account of me and on account of the preaching of the gospel, many of you will be arrested. But don't be intimidated. You're going to stand in front of religious rulers in the synagogue. They will flog you. You will stand in front of civic rulers and governors and kings to bear witness of who I am. They will throw you in jail and some of them may even take your very life. But you do not be intimidated. Because the gospel must be preached. What Jesus is implying is that as time goes on, there will be an ever-growing hostility towards the gospel. Can I get an amen? As you look through the last 2,000 years, we can testify to the truth of the statement of Jesus that as time has passed, there's been an ever-growing hostility towards the gospel. In fact, many of us in our very lifetime can remember a time when the gospel was more palatable in our culture than it is today. There seems to be, even in the American culture, an ever-growing hostility towards the gospel of Christ. So in verse 10, Jesus says, the gospel must be preached to all nations. I think there are a couple implications there. The first one is that as a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ, you keep preaching the gospel. Share the gospel visually in your life. Share the gospel and speak it verbally from your lips. You must continue to share the gospel even when hostility is mounted against you. Even when the adversary comes against you to try to stifle you and silence you. You must preach the gospel because the gospel must go forth to all the nations. Keep in mind, who is Mark writing to? He's writing to persecuted Christians living in the mid-60s of the first century. The Roman government is telling them to pipe down. The Roman government is saying that if you keep preaching the gospel, you'll suffer heavy taxation, your property will be confiscated, your lives will be taken from you, families will be ripped apart, you'll lose your jobs, you'll lose your very breath if you keep preaching the gospel. And here Jesus reminds the disciples, in any culture, in any generation, keep on preaching the gospel. Don't allow anything to silence you. Also, there's another implication with verse 10. The implication is that Jesus is telling the disciples, I will not come back until the gospel has been taken to the nations. It's one of those signs that they ask for. In our world today, there are 206 nations. Those 206 nations have approximately 20,000 people groups. A people group can be devised as an ethnicity with a common language or a common dialect. And in the 206 nations, there are about 20,000 people groups. Over the years, there have been numerous Christian organizations who have taken the Great Commission seriously. How is it that we can literally take the gospel to all nations? 
One of those particular groups is a group that's entitled Finishing the Task. And they reported that about 12 years ago, there were 3,600 unengaged people groups. And so they took it upon themselves to get churches and organizations and Christian groups to adopt unreached people groups or unengaged people groups. Finishing the task reported that this past year, that the very last of those remaining 3,600 unengaged people groups have now been adopted. And with the pattern that they have established, what that means is that sometime over the next three years, the gospel will go forth into those regions, into those areas, into those unengaged, perhaps unreached people groups. Now, I want you to hear me clearly. I am not saying that Jesus is coming back in three years, okay? I am not saying that. What I am saying is that the church is taking seriously the words of Jesus and here Jesus is reminding us that that gospel must go forth. And even though you and I live in a very reached people group, I mean, because America has been reached for a very long time, there are still a lot of people that we know, family members, coworkers, schoolmates, teammates, neighbors, people that we know that are lost, that if Jesus were to come back today, they would spend an eternity in hell. So why is he tarrying? He is tarrying because he does not want anyone to perish. He wants people to hear and respond in faith. So even after three years, when all of the support people groups have been engaged that still does not mean that Jesus will come back he may tarry a little bit longer why so that more and more and more individuals can hear the good news of the gospel and respond in faith we know this must take place because in the last book of the bible revelation it is John who sees representatives from every nation every kindred every tribe and every tongue And they have circled the throne of God and they are worshiping the Lord and the Lamb. So if that means that there's somebody from every people group, that means the gospel must go to every single people group. Please hear what Jesus is saying. Jesus is telling his disciples, watch out, be alert, be on guard, don't be intimidated. Hostility will grow towards the gospel. They will try to silence and stifle you, but you cannot be quiet because you have the mandate to take the gospel across the street and around the world. So you engage lostness with the truth of the gospel. Be alert, be watchful, so that you are not intimidated by a very wicked culture. In verse 14, Jesus begins to speak about the abomination that causes desolation. He describes some horrific event. And then at the end, in verse 23, you get the next, be alert, be on guard, watch. He says, watch out. For I've told you this before it actually comes to pass. The abomination that causes desolation. Out of everything that Jesus says in this teaching of Mark chapter 13, that phrase is the most intriguing. It's an abomination, which means it is something that is abhorrable to God. It's an abomination, it's an event, it's something that takes place 
that brings about great destruction, the abomination that causes desolation. There's, there's a great cosmic destruction that will take place because of this abominable thing that happens. So as you hear that phrase, the abomination that causes desolation, you ask yourself, what is that and where does it come from? Jesus is not the one who um, is speaking this off the cuff in this moment. No, he is quoting the Old Testament prophet Daniel. In the Old Testament book of Daniel, you'll find this phrase at least three times in that prophetic writing. The abomination that causes desolation. So Daniel prophesies that something horrible is going to take place sometime in the future. Now many people have wondered, what is it? Has it already happened? In 168 BC, the Greeks were flexing their muscles. The Greek leader that year was Antichus IV. The Jewish people revolted against the Greek Empire. It's Antichus IV who boldly comes into Jerusalem and overtakes the sacred city. He then has the audacity to go into the temple court. And not just the temple court, but he rams his way all the way in to the altar of God. And there Antichus IV sacrifices a pig on the altar of God. He sacrifices an unclean animal, an unclean animal not fit in the Mosaic law. And he wags his finger in the face of the Jewish God. And he wags his finger in the face of all of Judaism. And he takes an unclean animal, a pig, and he sacrifices it right there on the altar of God. When that took place, there were many who remembered the words of Daniel. An event that would be such an abomination that would cause desolation. And as they looked around, their sacred city was destroyed. Judaism was all but snuffed out. And there were many who said that in 168 BC, what Daniel prophesied was fulfilled. The interesting thing is that Jesus is speaking about 200 years after that event. And Jesus speaks of the abomination that causes desolation as some futuristic event. Which that has called many uh, biblical scholars to say what Jesus is referencing is the destruction of the temple which historians tell us occurred in 70 AD. So Jesus could be uh, referencing what will take place about 40 years after his life and ministry, death, burial, and resurrection. Because about 40 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, the Jewish people revolted against the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire flexed its muscles. They invaded the city of Jerusalem. They torched the city. They literally destroyed the temple so that not one stone was left on another. In 70 AD, the temple was reduced to a pile of rocks and rubble. Not one stone was left on another. And so many have said what Jesus is referencing is the futuristic, in about 40 years from his time, the futuristic event when the temple will be destroyed. Also keep in mind that Mark is writing in the mid-60s of the first century. So when the original audience received the gospel track, the temple had not yet been destroyed. 
But in about five to seven years from the time they get this letter from Mark, the temple will be destroyed. And this is what caused some to say, that's why Jesus can say that this generation will not pass away until all that I've spoken has taken place. The interesting thing about prophecy makes it the hard thing about prophecy is that there seems to typically be a short-term smaller fulfillment and then a long-term fuller fulfillment. Because I think that a case could be made that the abomination that causes desolation, that yeah, it was fulfilled partially in 168 BC when Antiochus IV uh, threw that old pig on the altar of God and sacrificed him there. And I think it also could be accurately stated that that abomination took place in 70 AD when those robust and rude Romans came in and literally destroyed the temple of God, the house of the Lord, so that not one stone was left on another. But I think there's an even even fuller fulfillment of this phrase that has not happened yet. I think there's a fuller fulfillment of this interpretation of the abomination that causes desolation, which will be when the Antichrist sets himself up to be worshipped by the world. And that will be the ultimate abomination that causes desolation. And that event has not happened yet, not even in our lifetime. And Jesus is telling the disciples, listen, don't miss the point. It's going to get far worse before it gets any better. And that's true for Peter, James, and John. It's also true for Tom, Dick, and Sally in the 21st century. For you and for me, it is equally true today. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And that's the point that Jesus is making. He's saying, listen, I am telling you this, not to strike fear in your heart, but to bolster faith in your life. Let me say that again. I'm telling you this, not to strike fear in your heart, but to bolster faith in your life. I don't want you to respond to all this tragedy. I don't want you to respond to all this suffering. I don't want you to to respond to all this wicked abomination with fear. I don't want you to be afraid of anything. I want you to tackle it with faith. Because whatever God permits, he has a purpose to promote. So just like the songwriter tells us, Have faith in God. He's on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches over his own. He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. That whenever you see a terrible tragedy and suffering that's going on, do not fret. Do not have fear. But you have faith in God. Because God is sovereign. He's in control. He knows what's happening. In fact, Jesus says, be alert because I've told you what's going to happen before it even takes place. Let me also make one more application of this truth. If God can handle cosmic chaos, then certainly he can handle my personal chaos. If God can handle the politics of the nations, then God can handle the politics of the office. 
If God can handle the crisis on a cosmic scale, then God can handle the crisis that's turning your life upside down right now. If God can handle the big stuff, God can handle the small stuff. If God can handle the magnificent, he can handle the minutia. And so it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God can take care of everything at the end of time, then certainly he can take care of everything in the meantime. So we respond to all of life, not with fear, but with faith. Because God is in control. So be alert. Jesus says that following this great distress, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars in the heavenlies will fall. Jesus is quoting the prophet Isaiah. Once again, that prophecy probably had a short-term fulfillment, but then there's also a long-term fuller fulfillment. You read that and you think to yourself, well, what what does Jesus mean by that? That the sun's going to stop shining, that the moon will not give its light that the heavenlies will be disrupted. Well, Jesus says in the very next line, I'm telling you exactly when that's going to be fulfilled. For the Son of Man will come on the clouds. The Son of Man will come on the clouds. He will come and dispatch his angels. And they will gather the elect The children of God, that's us. They they will come and gather the elect from the four corners of the globe and we will be with him forever and forever. My friends, I'm telling you, we live in a world of some more and Jesus is coming back to take us to a place of no more. We live with some more pain and we're going to the place of no more pain. We live with some more persecution, but we're going to the place of no more persecution. We live in a world of some more heartache, going to the place of no more heartache. Living in a world of some more cancer, going to the place of no more cancer. Living in a world of some more sickness, going to the place of no more sickness. Living in a world with some more tears, going to the place of no more tears. We live in a world of some more death, going to the place of no more death. I woke up this morning to come to tell you that Jesus one day will peel back the clouds and he will literally, bodily, physically come rescue the church. The reason God woke me up this morning, the reason God put air in my lungs, the reason he gave me the ability to push that air across some vocal cords, the reason he gave me some semblance of sanity today is for me just to stand before you and to tell you that Jesus is coming back. The Bible says that we're on a crash collision course with the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not something that we are to fear because we are in Christ. We all look forward in faith to the day of the Lord. But one day the trumpet will sound. One day Jesus will descend and you'll recognize that it's Jesus because 
because he still has the nail-scarred hands. You'll know that it's Jesus because he'll mount his white horse. You'll know it's Jesus because he'll wear his redemptive robe that's dipped in redemptive blood. You know that it's Jesus because tattooed on his thighs will be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know that it's Jesus because out of his mouth will come the sword of the Spirit, the very Word of God, and by that Word, he will defeat the devil, the dragon, the serpent, and all the Antichrist, and Jesus will set up his shop, he'll set up his kingdom, both now and forevermore, and we will be united with him to live with him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. I came this morning just to tell you that Jesus is coming back. And Jesus says, I'm telling you this, not to strike fear in your heart, but to bolster faith in your life. So the ultimate question is, when? When is this going to happen? When is he going to peel back the clouds? When is he going to come? When? The very next line of the sacred text, no one knows the day or the hour. Not the angels, not even the Son of Man, only the Father by his authority. Wait a minute, Jesus. You're bringing us to this very climactic end where you're going to come and rescue the church. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they're on the edge of their rocks, right? I mean, they're sitting right on the edge of their seat and they're waiting for Jesus to give them a timeline. But he doesn't give them a timeline of the end of time. He shows them how to live in the meantime. That's intriguing and that's very insightful. Jesus does not give his disciples a timeline. Why? Because Jesus says nobody knows the day or the hour. The angels don't know. The son doesn't know. Only the father knows. He does not give a timeline of what's going to happen specifically and then poof, he's going to pull back the clouds. He doesn't give us a timeline of the end of time. But he does show us how to live in the meantime. Jesus gives us an analogy of sorts. He gives us a parable. He says it's, it's like an owner of a house that goes away on a trip. Before leaving, he calls all of his servants together and he gives each servant a task. That word task is the word work. He gives each servant work to do. And every servant does the work knowing that one day the master's coming back. We don't know when, but he's coming back. Jesus uh, identifies this divine secret that is sprinkled all throughout the scripture, especially in the New Testament, that nobody knows when he's going to come back. Acts chapter 1, verse 7. Regarding dates and times, you don't need to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. First Thessalonians, Paul says to the church, now, regarding dates and times, I don't even need to write you. The reason he doesn't need to write is because Paul doesn't know. He doesn't know when it's going to happen. No one knows, which must mean no one knows. Okay, No one knows the day, the time, or the hour. But he does say it's going to come like a thief in the night. So you've got to be ready. 
In Matthew's version of this teaching, Jesus says that this, this day of the Lord, when the Son of Man comes on the clouds, it'll, it'll be like the days of Noah. That in the days of Noah, people were going on life as usual, eating and drinking, giving their daughters in marriage. Everything was normal, even up until the day when Noah and his family went to the ark, they shut the door, and the first raindrop fell. He said, so it will be when the days of the Son of Man. People will be eating and drinking, they'll be celebrating, they'll be giving their daughters away in marriage. And then all of a sudden, he'll peel back the clouds, and Jesus will descend but no one knows the day or the time of the hour. It's like the owner of the house that goes away. Before he goes, he gives the task and he says, I'm coming back. How long is it going to be? I don't know how long the trip's going to be, but you work because I'm coming back. And Jesus says those servants, they don't know. The master could come back in the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows at dawn. He could come back any time. And Jesus says to these disciples that when the owner of the house comes back, do not let him find you sleeping. Jesus, we want a timeline. We want to know when this is going to happen. What are the signs to let us know that not one stone is going to be left on the other? When is this going to happen? Jesus says, don't worry about the when. Just know that it's going to happen. And in the meantime, I want you to be spiritual insomniacs. An insomniac is somebody who can't fall asleep. And Jesus says, I want you to be spiritual insomniacs when it comes to the work that I've given you to do. When it comes to the will of God that you are to fulfill. You are to be a spiritual insomniac. Do not let Jesus find you asleep at the wheel. When he comes over that eastern sky, when he peels back the cloud, when he mounts his white horse, when he returns, do not let him fall and find you uh, being dozed off to the allures of this world. Do not let him find you asleep. Now he's not meaning a physical sleep. He's meaning spiritual sleep. Let me ask you this morning, are you awake? Well, yeah, preacher, you're talking too loud. How can anybody sleep? Of course I'm awake. No, I don't mean physically are you awake. I mean spiritually. Are you in tune with the things of God? Are you spiritually attentive? Are you spiritually awake? Because it would seem to me that Jesus tells his disciples then and now that in the meantime, until I come back, you do the work I've given you. Do the task. What's the task that God wants us to do? He wants us to be diligent about taking the gospel to the nations. He wants us to be diligent about being a disciple and making disciples. He wants us to be diligent about holiness. He wants us uh, to be awake about Christian marriage. He wants us to be alert when it comes to issues of life and abortion. He wants us to be alert and awake and on guard when it comes to issues like sex trafficking. He wants us to be awake. He wants us to be alert. He wants our eyes to be open. He wants us to be attentive at the morality of our lives and of our culture. He wants us to be awake. He doesn't want us to be asleep at the wheel. When Jesus comes back, do not let him find you asleep. You are to be a spiritual insomniac when it comes to the work of God and the will of God. You've heard me say before that your works don't save you. We are saved by grace alone and faith alone through Christ alone. Our works do not save. 
but we have been saved to work. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So once again, let me ask you, are you spiritually awake today? Let me ask a few quick questions and then I'll sit down. Question number one, has there ever been a time in your life when you were more on fire for the Lord than you are right now? Has there ever been a season in your life when you were more committed to prayer than you are in this season? Has there ever been a Sunday that you woke up more excited to go to church than you did this morning? Has there ever been a moment in your life and in your ministry when you were more faithful and engaged in evangelism than you have been this past week? Has there ever been a week where you read more scripture of God than you read this past week? Has there ever been a time when you're more committed unto the Lord and the things of God in your mind, in your heart, in your activity than you were in these past days? Has there ever been a time when you were more in love and on fire for the Lord than you are today? If the answer is yes to any of those questions, you are are spiritually asleep. Hear the alarm clock that Jesus gives to his disciples. Wake up. Be alert. Be watchful. Don't abandon your post. Jesus wraps up. He says, what I say to you, I say to everybody. Watch. While you wait, watch. While you're waiting and watching, work. While you're waiting and watching and working, just look towards the eastern sky because one day the clouds will be peeled back and Jesus will descend and he will take us to be with him forever and ever and ever. So we have to be awake. We have to be alert. So what Jesus says to his early disciples, he says to you today, watch, be on guard, be alert, wake up, keep your eyes open and attentive to the things of God. And when Jesus comes back, do not let him find you spiritually sleeping because Jesus is raising a bunch of spiritual insomniacs. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. Lord, for those of us who are spiritually dozing, those of us who are being allured by the things of the world, those of us that are just abdicating our responsibility of the work that you've given us to do, Lord, today, wake us up. Help us to fall at your feet. Help us to find the forgiveness that we need. Help us to be diligent and determined to be awake and alert at the, to the things of God. And Lord, if there's somebody here who needs to know you as Savior, Lord, I pray that today is the day of their salvation. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.